Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know what it says about us that the number one predictor of which service is more full is the weather. That was a, we had a quiet first service. It was like a it was like a Bible study time. I was. <laughs> um, uh, hey, so um, one of the things that that uh, if you've been coming for a while that you know that that I love to do. Um, that sometimes freaks other people out, is I, I love to, uh, to team teach on stage. It goes very natural to me, and I love doing it, and uh, especially when it's someone who has a very um, strong kindred spirit, and I feel that connection. So those of you who don't know John Keeling, this is John Keeling, and John has been actually, John and Bo have been at the church longer than, than Ginger and I have, um, uh, which is always one of those funny things, like if someone was there the week before you, it seems to you like they've been here forever. Um, uh, but... Um, they were here before us for about a year before us and were really held key in the leadership of the church. In fact, you recognize the key leadership that they have, um, if evidenced by the fact that you put Bo on the um, leadership board uh, this, these next two years. And so, um, anyway, we're excited to have them, and they've got, um, uh, obviously, and they've got uh, two precious daughters, uh, Ella and Maddie, and, um, uh, and so here, here's the thing. John, John is a history teacher at Grace, and um, again, like I told the first service, it took about 15 seconds to realize that John and I had always been friends. Um, I don't know, like we had not met, but it just took it. We even used to have a, another guy who would join us on my back porch, and we would pretend to be um, uh, the Inklings, you know, uh, Tolkien and, and Lewis. We would, we would talk about big things um, sitting on my back porch. It was, it was awesome. Um, I don't, I, it's sad to life that, that well, it's, not, it's not going on now, but uh, anyway, it was, it's, it's, it's a great thing. He also teaches, in fact, um, if you're a life group leader, Sunday morning life group, especially, so first, Sunday morning life, if you're a Sunday morning life group leader, leader or co-leader, would you stand real quick? I know there's a few of you here. Don't, I don't have a lot of time. Go, 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 stand. Thank you. Okay, I know we got more than him. Why? You're not standing. Yes. And so, uh, anyway, y'all, there's a whole bunch of them here. Um, they didn't move fast enough, though. Uh, and so... Uh, we, have, we have life groups that run in the evenings, uh, on Sunday nights during especially the fall and spring semester, but we have Sunday morning life groups for adults that run all year um, for different age ranges and that kind of stuff. And so um, anyway, John is one of those and has been faithfully doing that the whole time I've been here um, and before. And so anyway, um, just want to introduce him and he, he and I started talking about this passage the other day and I, I took, in a few minutes I was like, okay, John, I want you on stage with me. We got to teach this together. And so... Um, I think I think it'll be a blessing to you. So, with that being said, jump to um, Hebrews chapter eight, if you will, and uh, and I'm going to apologize up front to uh, Mike and the team who's up in the booth because we're going to be all over the map. Uh, we will loosely try to follow the notes, but I think we found out first hour that uh, we like to chase rabbits. Yes, we do. We both we are both so. a little bit on the doctor digression <laughs> perspective, so we're going to be trying to stick with it, but. Um, uh, anyway, so Hebrews chapter 8 begins with, the. what does it begin with? No, it doesn't. Um, sorry, <laughs> caught you, trap. No, it, it actually does. Uh, look at what it says. What it says is, now the point of what we're saying is, which is honestly just another way of saying, therefore. And so most of the chapters have begun, therefore, which has struck me as funny that the writer decided to say. Now the point of what we're saying, I don't know if the writer was like, I've said therefore too many times, I need to pick a different starting <laughs> phrase or... Or what? But so the point of what I've been saying, or therefore, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We could spend the whole time on that phrase. We're not going to. We, um, the, the, the role of Jesus Christ as priest, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
So we talked about last week the type of priest Jesus is. Next week, Bob Livesay, um, who is, uh, he's been coming to church. I've known him for years and years. He's an excellent Bible teacher. He's going to be teaching next week more about this detail that we're going to reference here real quick. But the kind of priest Jesus is. High priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above heavens, as Hebrews 7 said. We looked at this last week. Powerful, not needy. A priest who has the power to make things right. A God who cares enough to sympathize with us. One who saves, remember that word? One who saves to the uttermost. For those of you who were here last week, all of that was encapsulated in one picture, which will help you remember um, what we talked about last week. Um, so the picture we had last week was that one. Okay, so now, you, now it's all coming together for you based on this message. When, you're going, when you need to be saved, what you want is power. Um, yes, you want someone who's willing to save you. That's one trait. But you want someone who can save you, who can fix your life, who can save your marriage, who can fix your relationship with your kids, who can fix your relationship with your... Who can? Can what? You name it. And so as cute as Zac Efron is and honestly as ripped as he is when he's standing by himself, if you have a choice between him and the rock being the one who drags you out of the ocean... By the way, I had somebody afterwards tell me, I said last week, like, do not watch this movie. I know this, I've not seen it, but I know it's a nightmare. Stay away from it. I actually had come up, someone come up and say that this movie broke the record for them leaving a movie. The less than 10 minutes, they were up and out. They were like, this is a nightmare. Um, it is I'm not fan. So again, I'm not, I'm not condoning the movie. But this image came to me like, hey, I'd love to be saved. And if I'm going to be saved, though, I want power. So I want the guy who can press me above his head and drag me out of the water if he feels like it. That's huge. Now, okay. Now, the, but this phrase, this is actually what got John, got John and I started on it, is the phrase, um, the true tent the Lord had set up, not man. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want John to pick up there and talk about that yeah, idea a little bit. Well, one of the things we started talking about um, is um, I actually, I, I did a Bible study several years ago. Actually, my wife uh, introduced me to, uh, was about, it was a study of the tabernacle. It was actually a Beth Moore Bible study. It's actually very good. I, it's just kind of one of those things you read in the Old Testament. It's like they're talking about a tent and it's this big and it's that wide and they make it out of this and you're like, what is this all about? But there's a really interesting um, phrase at the end of Exodus 25 where Moses is given the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And it's basically this, make it just the way I showed you. It's this idea that it's a copy. And it's one of these things we talked about. It's like, okay, is he talking like, like, is he by analogy? Is this some kind of like spiritual metaphor? Or is there an actual place in heaven that looks like this in some way? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so the more we talked about it, the more it's like, well, it's in other places in Scripture. Um, you know, Isaiah talks about being in the throne room of God. Uh, Ezekiel gives a description of the, the interior of the, of the temple and things like that. And, and honestly, to me, one of, one of the most interesting stories um, that makes me kind of tend to think, I think this is an actual real thing, right. is uh, in Luke. And in Luke chapter 1, we get the story of Zechariah. Uh, now, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and he was a priest, and he, um, he served at the temple, which the tabernacle was eventually turned into the temple. Right. The tabernacle was eventually replaced. Solomon builds the temple. He builds that uh, in Jerusalem. And so, 
So Zechariah was a priest. And one of the things that you got to do as a priest, it was a real honor, uh, was you got to go into the, the, uh, the inner portion of the temple next to the Holy of Holies and actually burn incense uh, on behalf of the people. It's something not everybody got to do. Uh, certainly, you didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies because only the high priest got to do that. But he got to go inside. Well, if you know the description of what the interior of that room, it's like it's really cool because there's, there's these, these uh, utensils and there's a, a lampstand and other things going on inside there. But in the tapestry of the room itself, you had angels. So there's angels on the walls and in the tapestry and things like that. And so Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 goes in to this area to basically serve, and he's, uh, he's probably excited thinking, this is really cool, I never get to do this. And suddenly, boom, there's an angel. It's a real angel, and the angel begins to talk to him. And I, I love it. It's, it's very understated in Luke, and it said, and he was troubled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I bet he was. Um, and and it's, it's almost like God allowed the veil between the real and the copy to be pulled back for a minute. So he wasn't just looking at angels in the tapestry, which was meant to show him what was actually going on. He actually saw it, right. and, and, and he was dumbfounded. Literally, I think that's where we probably get that word from. He could not speak for a while um, until his son was born. Um, so just, I don't know, I've yeah. always kind of had this impression that it was a real we place. We see that, and that's something we agreed on, is that there's a real, again, a spiritual place. It's not a physical place, but a spiritual place and that maybe has a physical representation someday. But Revelation 4 and 5 talks about it and goes in detail of this mm-hmm. room, talks about the sevenfold the sevenfold lamp of God, which again is a menorah. I mean, that's, there's a menorah in there. It's a seven lamp with seven stands on it. And, and that, that that is the representation of the Holy Spirit, for example. So there is such a place and God wanted to instruct his people. In fact, so let me just read to you from Hebrews 8, verse, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Keep in mind, at the time the writer of the Hebrews wrote this, there was a temple still standing. Now, it only had a few more years before it was going to come down stone by stone. But at the time it was written, there was a temple there, and people were offering sacrifices. And he's saying, but Jesus doesn't have to keep doing that, because the, t- the sacrifice he offered was in the real deal, not the copy. Okay, so keep going. Um, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So I think the writer of Hebrews thought this was a real place. For when Moses was about to erect the temple, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountains. Again, that kind of brings it to life. The, the idea that God was showing all these things that we have from the beginning of Genesis, maybe all the way through the, the books of the law, what we have is God showing things to Moses and Moses writing them down, explaining them to him. That's, a, that's an amazing picture that this was being shown. Now, jumping down to verse 6. Um, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. I'm going I'm to stop and say, so we've got Jesus as a better messenger Back in chapter 1, we've got him as a better lawgiver. We've got him as a better temple. We've got him as a better priest. We've got him as a better sacrifice. The idea of him being a better temple will be, again, probably in vivid living color for you the next few weeks. But um, as we continue to go through this, I hope you'll read it. But 
the better covenant is what John and I are going to be focusing on this morning, that Jesus represents a better covenant, a better agreement, and that was definitely needed. Um, and, and, here's yeah, a, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing, and even in my head, I don't know that I've always um, made a distinction between the law and the covenant. Because the law was basically the rules. Now, sometimes those words are used interchangeably, but, but it means two different things. The law was the rules laid out by God that the Israelites were to follow. The covenant was the treaty stipulation between God and the Israelites that we're going to follow the law. Israelites, you follow the law. If you follow the law, I will bless you and protect you. That was the deal. In fact, it's, it's fascinating. We actually studied Deuteronomy in my Sunday school class over the last several months. And it's one of those things that um, um, and the more we dug into it, the more I was surprised by what I found. And, and the reason we started is because we realized that Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy a lot. Almost all the time, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, if he quoted it, maybe we should take a second look at it. And so uh, what you find there is you find literally it was written like a treaty between vassals and lords at that time in history. Well, the Lord was God Almighty and the vassals were the Israelites. That was the covenant. And the covenant was, you do the law, I'll protect and bless you. Okay. So here he's saying, I want a new covenant. That there, there's, a, there's a problem with the covenant. And by the way, what's interesting about the, the covenant problem was that the people would not keep it. Right. That, that seemed to be the, the problem. And here's what's fascinating about this, is that the, the, the limitation was the covenant. The people couldn't keep it. And, and, and a lot of times when we think about law, and this is what else was fascinating about studying Deuteronomy, when we think about the Old Testament law, don't, in the back of your head, you start thinking, oh, that's that weird stuff, right? About don't eat shellfish and don't, you know, walk too far on Sunday. And you know, all those other kind of weird things. We think of them as these kind of these wet blankety prohibitions against don't do that, don't do this, don't. And so I asked my class, I was like, you know, that's that kind of Old Testament view of God that we have that's kind of, you know, kind of dour and, you know, wagging his finger and, and just, just very negative. Until we went back to the beginning of Deuteronomy and we looked at this preface where God is giving them the law. And I want you guys to see this. Um, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 35. This is where God is giving them the law. And this is what he says. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire. And you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after he brought you out of Egypt. By his presence and his great strength. To drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you. And to bring you into their land and to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you all time. Now, here's what's interesting about this. When you look at that passage and you look at, well, why did God say he gave them the law? He starts by saying, I gave you the law because I loved you. Mm -hmm. and, and we suddenly said, well, maybe Deuteronomy was really kind of the first good news. It was almost like the first gospel in many ways. It's like, he said, I loved you. And by the way, all throughout Deuteronomy, he is constantly telling the Israelites, remember, you're nothing special. Mm -hmm. Because they weren't. He said, the only reason you're special is because I picked you 
I chose you. I pulled you out. I saved you. You are special because I said you're special. I love you. And then he gives them the law and says, why did I give you the law? So that it'll go well with you. So that it'll go well with your children. So you'll know how to live. It was, it was as if he was telling them, I created everything with a purpose. And there is a way to live. And I am going to give you a way to live. And then they did their best to do that. And of course, they do a horrible job, right? right? Um, they do a horrible job. And they do all sorts of interesting things. Um, like, for instance, okay. So you got a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just a, first, a couple of chapters after this. Where God is trying to get them to think about the law. You know, and, and to, to kind of hold on to the law. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These commandments that I give you here are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses um, and on your gates. It's a little bit different uh, translation. My apologies, my notes are in a different translation. But basically, you've got all these, these, these things that you're supposed to be doing where you're supposed to literally write these things down, right. okay? Now, of course, you're reading that and you're thinking, okay, this just means think about it, right? Well, literally, uh, the Jews took this very much to heart. And they literally started doing things like writing the law down on their doorposts. What you're looking at here is something called a mezuzah. And it is a, uh, a little uh, box, literally, that you attach to the doorframe of your house that has uh, scripture inside it. And this is something you're going to see. Uh, we saw these all over in Israel. In fact, yeah. a lot of people, when they go to Israel, this is one of the things they want to buy. But they've got really decorative ones, things like that. But you go to a Jewish home here in Tyler, you will see the same thing. And there's a lot of Christians that do the same thing. And it's, 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 a, it's a nice idea. But some families take this to heart like, you've got to have it. Right. You know, it's obligatory. I must have this. Or they take the other passages about writing things on your, on your hands and on your, on your you know, forehead, things like that. And that's how you get what are called phylacteries. A phylactery or a tiflin is actually a little box that you take and you open and you put scripture inside it. And you wrap it around your arms. What you're seeing here is a, uh, that was an IDF soldier who's actually uh, having a, uh, an Orthodox rabbi help him tie those on there before he prayed. Um, you can, by the way, get a phylactery for $49.95 on Amazon.com. I saw, uh, so I was kind of curious. But yeah, anybody can buy these. Um, but they took it so literally that I am going to take these things and tie them to myself. I remember being at the Western Wailing Wall uh, when we got to, a chance to go down and actually pray at the wall. There was a guy next to me and he was... I mean, he had arms outstretched, and, and he had it all over, okay? Which is, once again, it's an interesting thought. Um, but the lengths to which they will take the law right. and try to extrapolate how to live, probably one of the most interesting things we experienced in Israel was being uh, in Jerusalem on Sabbath, on Shabbat. Well, that begins at sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on Saturday, well, that means a lot of interesting things. One of them being that they don't cook food in Orthodox Jewish uh, establishments on Sabbath. So everything has to be cooked the day ahead. Right. So that meant cold food on, on Saturday, which was kind of interesting. Even at the hotel. Even at the hotel. Right. Uh, and, it, and it also meant interesting things like this. So we go into the hotel and there's, there's like um, at, at the elevators. There's four elevators there and there are two that have these blue lights on them. And they had to explain to us because they said, uh, don't wait on that elevator. And we're like, but... 
that we, we need to go up. And they're like, no, don't wait on that. Those are the Shabbat elevators. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's a little blue light at the top. And on it, it says on Shabbat, these elevators are basically kosher is yeah, kind of what kosher, it said. Right. What it means is that those elevators basically run for 24 hours from floor to floor to floor automatically so that you do not have to press the button because pressing the button would be work. Right. That is the extent to which the don't work on the Sabbath is taken to, which is yep. just, it's, it's kind of that's, insane. That picture, um, I, saw, I mean, that's actually just a misunderstanding of what electricity is. They think they're starting a fire when they push a button. And at some point, that was decided by the pharisaical leadership that's there now, the rabbis who are there now. And so that's how it is now. So you don't push buttons uh, to turn things on or off. Everything has to be automated on Sabbath. And it makes for an interesting day for those of us who are not following the Sabbath um, as everything closes down. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. Um, now, that being said, again, our mindset is at worst is this idea that, um, that, that this is the, the wet blankety thing that John referenced, that this is God just saying like, ah, you know what, you guys look like you're having too much fun. Let me figure out some ways to keep you from having so much fun. And so there's this rule and that rule and this rule. At, at best, I feel like in the evangelical, Christian, even Protestant, whatever mindset, we, what we say is, no, but it's, it's God's way of keeping us from killing ourselves. Um, it's got, by God making us take a day off, he's, he's making, keeping us from killing ourselves. By God telling us not to eat monkeys, he's keeping us from getting Ebola or things like that. You know, you hear it's kind of like, you know, if Colonel Colt says, don't, don't point the thing I invented at your head and pull the little trigger thing, you ought to listen because he knows what he's talking about. But there's, it's, it's so much more, this new covenant is so much more than that. Um, and it seems like, so here's a way that we want to express this. So John and I, have, have, as we talked about this, we thought, you know what? I want to be free of the law. I, th I think rules are ridiculous. And so a way that, that I want to be free is I want to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. And I, I always have. And let me tell you something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to play the piano. And so I'm going to play the piano. Um, and we're going to do it now. Because... Yeah, I mean, because we're free to do we're that. Free to do that the right? and, and I've always wanted to play the violin. So, so <laughs> rules. I, hey, you know, who needs rules? Rules schmools, right? Freedom. Right, so. <clears throat> okay. so now that the law doesn't restrict us, we can do whatever we want. So we're free to create music. Ready, John? Are you? Oh. Hold up, hold up, hold up. All right. I want to make sure we do this correctly, right? Right. Ready? Ready? Go. Okay. Go. <laughs> being replaced.
Okay. By, by total coincidence, those are our daughters. Yes. By the way, that's just a... <laughs> Okay. Well, so, so here's the thing. You know, when Jesus came, Jesus did not come and ab- abolish the law. He right. came and established a new covenant. The problem was they couldn't keep the law. The law makes sense. There, 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 is, a, there, is, a, there is a purpose to the law. Right. In the same way that there are, and, and you know, purpose and law just basically mean that like, it's like the law of gravity. Right. I mean, if, if you don't abide by the law of gravity, it will be painful, right. okay? But that, that's a negative way of looking at it. But here's the thing. Our daughters have learned the law of music. Right. They have meditated on it. They have practiced it. They, through discipline and through time and attention, have gone, and not in a negative way, they have learned the laws of music. And what has that done? It's given them a freedom. See, there's really two ways of looking. That we don't have. Yes, that we absolutely do not have. (laughs) So, in the earlier service said, or talent. Okay, (laughs) get it, I get it. Um, So, uh, there's actually a moral theologian by the name of Service Pinkers who put it this way. He said, there's a problem. For about the last 600 years, moral philosophy has focused on what what he calls the law, basically what he calls the freedom of indifference. It's the idea that I've got the freedom to do whatever I want to. It's libertinism, basically, is what it is. A libertarianism, not politically, but this idea that I am completely untethered. I am completely free. I am basically a god unto myself. Or, he said, a better way of looking at freedom is what he calls the freedom of excellence. And that is by understanding the law... And by meditating on the law, by, by, un, by appreciating and disciplining yourself to the law, it gives you a freedom to be who you were created to be. And music is a great analogy in yes. that. It's this idea that they are free to make beautiful things that I don't have because I am not versed in that law. I don't know that law. And, and here's what's really exciting about this. Because here's the thing. Why couldn't the Israelites keep the law? Because they couldn't. It was too hard. They constantly messed it up. And so what comes in here is in, in Hebrews talking about, I need a new covenant. If you, if you look at Hebrews starting in, um, in verse 8, uh, Hebrews 8 starting in verse 8, if we could read this together. Um, because this is really one of the other reasons why um, this, is, this is better. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Two things here. When Jesus taught the law, he didn't say I'm doing away with the law. He brought the law to a whole new level. The law was no longer this obligatory thing. He would say things like, you've heard it said. And people are like, Deuteronomy says that. And he was like, but I say... And he made every law a matter of the heart. That's right. He was talking about transforming people, not because they followed the rules for rules' sake. He was literally talking about making them holy, making them priests, which we'll t- talk about here in another minute. But still, it's like he's still saying, do this. And by the way, what did his disciples say most of the time? Then how are anybody? How, how can anybody do this? It's impossible. And he goes, absolutely. But I'm going away, and I'm going to send a helper. That's right. 
He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You absolutely cannot keep the covenant. It is only empowered by the Holy Spirit that you can. It is only his intercession on your behalf that you can keep the covenant. And, and you know, and here's what I, I was thinking about this with regard to our daughters in playing. What if I had told Ella at the age of five, hey, I want you to play the violin and left it at that. Could she have ever done so if I had not in some way come alongside her and, I, I don't know, purchased a violin, taken her to practice, found a teacher for her, told her that she needed to practice, you know, all of those kinds of things, and then sat and listened to her and taken enormous delight in what she's doing. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives with regard to the law. The, fo- the, the follow-through of the law is still the same in that it will go well for you. Yep. Like that is still the, that's the difference. Again, it isn't that they are, um, that, that, that they're playing music, they're free to play music through the law. The fulfillment of the law is the life that we now are allowed to have through Christ, what Christ does in us, what His Spirit, who He he went away to send the Spirit, and the Spirit living in us allows us now God's law is, is in us. It is part of our heart and our wiring, our DNA. And we're, so that's actually, so there's three distinctives in this new covenant I want to go through quickly. One, um, one is an expression of love. It's good that God, God's people couldn't fulfill it, so instead of having to wrap it literally around our arms and wrap it literally around our heads, that we don't have to do that. That the fact that there's no temple on the Temple Mount doesn't disrupt our ability to worship because worship is not dependent on a place. It's not dependent on a priest, or at least not a human priest. Because now we worship in spirit and truth. We worship fully. God says, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. That's one. That's different than God wanted them to have it inside, wanted them to understand it, but they, they literally had to write it. By the way, those, those phylacteries sometimes have the entire Torah before printers, people learned to write in tiny, tiny, tiny letters so they could put every single letter of the law and then wrap it up really, really, really tightly and stick it up. Some of the first writings we have of Scripture are on silver, and they're tiny, tiny, tiny. There were people, that was their, that's what they did, was because they could write so tiny. They're so, with the, that literal expression. The second one is, which is what John was talking about, then tabernacling with our daughters, so to speak, in the process of them learning the law. God did that. He set his tabernacle in their midst. They lived all around it. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we showed the video of the, the idea of the idea of person walking to that tabernacle to give a sacrifice. And he said, I'm going to live in your midst. Well, now, literally, I will be their God. They will be my people. They shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, saying to his brother, know the Lord, for they shall know me. Certainly part of this is to be fulfilled in the future. But there's a sense now, think about this, where what it means to be God's people now is that you know Him. That's how you become God's people, is that you know Him. That's what, that's what unites us. There's not a lot that unites us except that we know God through Jesus Christ. That is the second big one. And we'll get to the third one here um, that comes through this, the covenant of the heart. And the fact that we aren't perfect receptors, that's okay, This isn't just about the law not making us do bad things, as I said, but it gives us the freedom to live in this way. Um, I'm going to go ahead and mention the the vestment thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So as John and I were talking about this, one of the things that struck me was um, I've always wondered what it would be like to have vestments. 
little priestly robes, so to speak, um, like some of our brothers who are um, at the, the Episcopal Church or some of the others that they wear the collar everywhere they go or the priest or whatever. I think that's a cool idea from one perspective. What was it that your friend said? Yeah, I, I, I have a, a buddy who is a Jesuit priest, and whenever he's traveling, he doesn't always have to wear the cleric, the collar. And he said he has to be very mindful when he does. He says, I love it. Because it's like a big flashing sign that says the priest is in. And he said, so total random people walk up and man, they want to talk to you. In fact, he said there is a desperation in people who so badly want to talk to somebody right. who will pray for them, hear their confession, whatever that happens to be. But he has to, he said, but on days when I'm exhausted, sometimes I don't want to talk to everybody. And <laughs> he said, you know, he said, I really do have to think about whether I'm I am in, you know, that kind of thing. That's so. what I like about it is that idea that people would know they can stop me. And so when I'm dressed like this, they don't know like, oh, you must be a pastor of a church. Let me get your... However, here's what I don't like about it so much is that it, would, it, it seems like it sets apart that professional Christian as somehow so radically different from the people in the congregation. And that's error, we are a priesthood of believers. The only way I would be willing to... By the way, and I would be all about this. So if we're willing to go all in on this, the only reason, way I would be willing to wear that collar is if all of you were too. Is if we acknowledged, because this is the truth that we believe, is that if you are a Christian, you are a priest. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But who is the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek? We are. That's us. So we're gonna, I'm going to break that open a little bit more at the very end of the sermon. But this is a, that's the, that's the idea that we really are priests. It really is us living this out ourselves. Yeah, the, the, the way First Peter puts it in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's you, and that's probably terrifying, right? I mean, you're probably thinking, Chris, I'm not going to wear a cleric. No, I don't, I don't care what you say, right? I mean, that, that's, I'm not going to do that. But here's the thing. That's what you're called to. That's what we're all called to. So what does a priest do? A priest intercedes. A priest, as it says, um, proclaims the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Basically, you are required to basically be God's ambassador, to talk about that. Now, you know, so, so here's the thing. Here's what makes this difficult, is in living out the Christian life, we are, you know, as, as we're talking through this, living out your purpose is impossible apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times it feels like drudgery and it's, and it's hard, yes. But you know what? There, there's another side of this that makes you sometimes think, well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, that's, that's where we come together as a body and learn these things. It's through the disciplines. It's through prayer. It's through Bible study. It is through fasting. It is through coming together to worship. It is through holding each other accountable. It is through friendship. It is through all of these things. But even in all of those things, oftentimes, you know, we, we sometimes look at these, at, at, at these stories from Scripture and we go, yeah, but, but that was awesome. Did you see what happened to David? 
Did, did you see what happened to some of those prophets? Did you see what Elijah did? I mean, that was awesome. I mean, God like really did something awesome and incredible there. I mean, it was, it was supernatural. How come we don't see those? Because we don't ask for it. It's real simple. Oftentimes, we don't see God manifest in a supernatural way because we don't ask for it. Especially as Americans. We are so self-sufficient, which is an American character trait, right? Pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to do this. And, we, and we, we hand that over into our spirituality a lot of times in the way we want to follow God. Well, I'll do it myself, that sort of thing, right? And so, you want to see a miracle? Do something that requires God to show up. As I was thinking through this, one of the, 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 the ways that I, I thought about this sort of thing is I've been thinking a lot about with um, the children's building and giving and all those kinds of things, especially with the tabernacle. It really made me think about this. So here's what's crazy about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was built through what was called a free will offering, which meant Moses asked the people, hey, give whatever you want and we'll put it together. Um, how did a bunch of slaves wandering in the desert have anything to give? Well, because God provided it when they left Egypt. The Egyptians gave them all their stuff just so they would leave. And so they walked out with all this stuff. And then Moses said, I want, I'm going to build a tabernacle. God wants to build a tabernacle to tabernacle and dwell within you. And so you need to give us, you know, what we need to put it together. And Moses literally had to tell the people, stop. Right. But how cool was it? For those people that gave an earring, a necklace, a piece of jewelry or whatever, and every time they walked by the tabernacle, they go, I got to give to that. I got to participate in building, like you said earlier, the Ark of the Covenant. Right. That's made out of something I gave. I got to be a part of that. The Ark of the Covenant. That just blew right. my mind as I thought about that. Like, I'm not even allowed to see it or touch it, but my earring is part of what made it, or my piece of gold is part of what made it. That to me was huge. And so we look at things today and go, well, well, it's a little different today. Yes, it is different, but it's maybe even more miraculous. Right. When you give to something like a children's building, you are giving to a new tabernacle, a place where God is going to dwell with children, sometimes for the first time. That's holy ground. Think about that. There, there are classrooms over there where for the first time, children may encounter God in a real way. And you could, that gives me goosebumps. Yeah, you get too. to be a part of that. But here's the thing. The other side of that is like, yeah, that's cool. And that's, that's awesome and all. But, you know, I really struggle with the giving and all, on that side of it. Well, here's the other cool part of this. The other cool part of this is in your giving, one of the things that I have found uh, to be true in, in, in mine and Bo's life when it comes to giving and things like that is that giving is so much more painful and fun at the same time when you give an amount that's kind of scary. Because the only way it can happen is if God provides. And I'm not saying that's what you have to do. But I'm saying that it's happened enough times in our past. That whenever we felt like God was saying, okay, this is what I need to do. And, and I'm like, yeah, but we, got a, we had a flat and we need four new tires this month. Or, yeah, the air conditioner went out. Or all those kinds of things that you all know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. right? Anytime we have felt compelled, though, to give a number, and it's kind of beyond our comfort zone, it's always been a, well, if that's what God wants us to give, I guess he'll provide for it. And I felt very much like a slave in Egypt. And guess what? It's always showed up. 
somehow, some way. Because, you know, when God lays that on your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's the one that lays it there and he's the one that's going to provide for it. And at the end of the day, I get to go, cool, we gave to that. And then I get to go, yeah, and I got this really cool story about how it happened. And I, and I just want everyone to have the blessing of that. That is not something that we talk about much and it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation. But I'm telling you, I want you all to have the blessing of seeing God arrive supernaturally in your life and empower you to be his priest. That is an awesome thing. And it's an awesome privilege that we get. So you got one of these in your bulletin. (laughs) I I keep hearing, I'm telling you guys, and today's like, not, not really the last day. The, the 19th will be the last day. But today is because the leadership board has to make a recommendation deciding on the 19th. So I keep hearing people say like, oh, we keep forgetting to fill that out. Or, oh, we, whatever. We did it. We... And so, I, again, going back to, and I mean this, we aren't, no one in the leadership is concerned at this stage about how much people give. But whether people are committed the idea that we could have 900 people on our roll, or so, 900 to 1,000 people on our roll, and that we would ask for 301 families to commit something. It doesn't matter what it is. We have had, literally, so you'll know, one of the people, I know one, one is a couple who visited last week and who is not a part of our church and was coming through town and said, your church's passion for raising up a new generation of Christian leaders and servants is exactly what churches need to be doing. So we took one and we're giving it. The one-time guests who will almost certainly not be back unless God brings them back, they caught that vision. And, and my, our passion is that at least 301 of us, and they're one, so 300 more, um, would catch the vision of the significance of setting this up. So right now, seriously, I'm, I'm pulling the old fundraising... <laughs> You know, fundraising dinner trick. Pull out, pull that thing out of there and hold it up for a second so they'll know that you you won't you can't say like, oh, I kept forgetting to get one. Now you have one. It doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter how much you put on it, guys. This is that's this that's between you. I seriously, it is not a cool story if you feel pressured into putting a certain number on there from anyone in leadership. It is a cool story if you feel God's impression to put something on there and follow through with it. Um, and we had we were we are out of time, but man, I, I I wrote down numerous stories of our family when we felt like God called us to do something, and it felt dumb to do it, it felt ridiculous to do it, it felt too big to do it, and we said, well, I mean, and I'm telling you guys, just listening to the Spirit who is in us, um, a a very short, quick one was Ginger driving out of church, and we were over at Bethel. And driving out, and there was a single mom there, and she stopped. They had a conversation, and she said, hey, if you ever want to bring your son fishing at the pond behind our house, we'd love for you to do that. And the lady was like, that's so sweet. And Ginger said she drove off, and the spirit said, go back and make sure she understood that that wasn't just a, you know, one of those nice things people say. So she did. And, like, the lady starts crying and is like, I just assumed you were being nice, but I have a bucket list of things for my son that I cannot provide for him. As a single mom, I cannot take him fishing. I don't know where to take him. I don't know how to fish. I don't know. And one of the things on my list was that I would take my son fishing someday. And Ginger coming back and saying, well, we, we, got, we got fishing poles in a pond. I mean, that's pretty much all you need, right? And so that type of just a tiniest little thing of saying, I heard the Spirit lead, so let's go. And you get an awesome Bible quality story out of it. So just, we just we want to challenge you with that. Let me, let me wrap this up here. So... 
This idea that understanding that children, just like us, that the rest of us, we are the embodiment of the temple. We are what the Bible calls the living stones that, that God is building his new temple out of. That's us. Or even the Apostle Paul says that our bodies are temples, so, which makes total sense. If he is the temple, listen to this, um, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. In speaking of the new covenant, this is verse 12 and 13, he makes the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This idea of obsolete, I've heard people use this as almost anti-Semitic. It doesn't, obsolete doesn't mean it never served a purpose or that it, it does not have a role in the future. We have to engage with God's Spirit to lead us in how to apply the law. We have to study the teachings of Jesus and study the teachings of the apostles and how we apply those things for sure. And we don't have time to get off on that today, uh, on how we do some of that stuff. But we listen to the Spirit in us, guiding us. It becomes a matter of the heart, a matter of motivation. Think about the different passages, like when the Apostle Paul, when, when he talks about do we eat certain things or not eat certain things. The fact that it's eating certain things or not eating certain things becomes irrelevant to the conversation. What matters is what is its effect on other believers and why am I eating it or why would I not eat it? Again, it becomes, that's where the law is centered is in our hearts and in our minds. That's how we want to live that out. Obsolete means the the picture wasn't complete and now it's complete. Jesus fulfilled this for us. We get to make music because the law is in our hearts. We get to live out this new covenant Because God's Spirit is in us. If you're a believer, His Spirit is in you. Now, you may not really be good at listening to it yet because you may not have disciplined yourself to learn. Even in the case that the the law of the Spirit still involves discipline, it still involves prayer. All the different things your Sunday school teacher used to give you brownie points for doing. That wasn't just behavioral modification. It was to help you engage with the Spirit and the law of the Spirit. That's what that was for, to bring your Bible to church. To bring a friend to church, that Bible study and evangelism and all these different disciplines. So don't, don't back off on that. We do those because we are his priests, and those give us the tools to live that out day to day. Um, we're not, it's not some oppressive thing that's over us. It is the opportunity to do. Now, does it require discipline? Yes, just like learning to be good at music requires discipline. But if you want to live out the Christian life, if you want to live in this new covenant, If you're a believer, you are under this new covenant, but you want to live well in it, then yes, we learn to discipline ourselves and and study God's word and and come to church and engage together and we're all those things in spirit and truth. We are the new wineskins. And God has put a new wine in us that we can experience in new ways. Think this is the closing thought here. This is a, if Jesus Christ is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, then we are his priesthood. We are the priestly people. If Jesus Christ is the ultimate perfect sacrifice, that explains why we are the living sacrifices under him. If he is the perfect temple, that's why we are the stones to build the temple here. All of this, the who Jesus Christ is revealed to be in Hebrews greater than, then has an application towards us as well. Us, our freedom to live this out, what does it look like? We get to do these type of things together, of which building a building, which is the easy part, by the way, and then staffing that building with priests who will train up a new generation of priests, a new generation of ambassadors, a new generation of ministers. And that's what we are all about. So again, let me challenge you. If you have not, if you're a member of the church in particular, or if you've got kids in that ministry in particular, 
please don't leave this morning without making some kind of commitment to be on board with what God has called us to do in regards to this. So that's a challenge. Even if it is just to pray, which, by the way, prayer is what really makes this kind of stuff happen. So even if you have given money, that doesn't, you didn't buy your way out of praying for it. We all need to be praying for this. So let's do that. Father, thank you so much for the chance to be involved in what you're doing. Thank you that we get to be priests. That's a cool thing that because your son is the high priest. We get to be like a temple because your son is the perfect temple who perfectly comes and tabernacles with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That you don't just abide in a building that's someplace we can go, but you abide in our hearts and minds. God, that that you are the perfect, your son is the perfect sacrifice so we can then act as living sacrifices being poured out like a drink offering to you every day. God, we we are really pretty awful at this and we need your constant reminder to live this out, to practice daily, to learn to study so that we can rightly handle the word of truth, all of us. I thank you for the, the friendship, the devotion that, that you have given John and I with each other because of our united devotion to you, that you've called us to be men in your kingdom who love our wives and our kids and our church and all those things, God, like so many others are here. And I pray that you would call us out in new ways. I, Lord, I desperately pray. I don't know how to make this kind of stuff happen. It is beyond me that we would have 301 people um, and that we don't yet. God, I don't, I don't get that. I don't know what that's about. I'm trusting in you. Now, the, the number, uh, the, this is an example of a spiritual exercise, Lord, that um, is beyond us. So we pray that you would accomplish things through your people in ways that we can't. Lord, we want to give people the opportunity, but in the end, it's between you and them, and we ask that you would teach us whatever lessons you have for us in it. Thank you, Father. We love you and we praise you in all of it in your son's name and according to the sanctifying work of your spirit and your perfect will. Amen.